it just occurred to me, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, welcome. It just occurred to me that I start with that dua a lot of times, or that, that supplication, and I don't translate it. So, I'm going to try to, but it's harder to remember things when you do them piece by piece. So, uh, it says, O oh God, Allahumma, iftahanayna bi hikmatik. Give us openings. By your wisdom Like open our heart to spiritual understandings In accordance with your wisdom uh, What it comes out of Tahanayna bi hikmatik Tahanayna bi hikmatik Wanshur alayna bi rahmatik And spread upon us your mercy uh, like Kind of like It's not like spread isn't You have to have the right image It's kind of like Um What's a good image for it? Like if you were to... Hmm, I'll give you the exact image that's coming to mind right now. When you make Kabuli Palau, you know the Afghan rice that has the carrots on it? And you have the rice that's there and then you sprinkle the carrots and the raisins along the top. You kind of like spread them on the top. That's like unshur alayna bi rahmatik. Just lay your mercy out, like spread it on top of us. And a very, it's a very beautiful imagery. Like I said, it's hard. O possessor of majesty and generosity. Then what do I say? Teach us from your knowledge that by which you will be pleased with us. And don't Take us to account for that which you know from us, you know, um, meaning our shortcomings and so on. Ya Hanimu Khaliqna bi Khulqin Hilm, O you who is the most forbearant, uh, give us the character trait of forbearance, uh, and and help us to realize the truth of knowledge. Give us a deep understanding of the secrets of learning. You know, again, it relates to the heart. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, is that it? Is anyone? Ah, then the verse. Glorified are you. There is no knowledge except what you have taught us. You who knows everything. Okay. So now, next time, you'll know. Inshallah. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, this is where we left off. Qawl Musannifu, rahimahullah ta'ala, wa nafanallahu yahu bi'ulumihim fi darin. That one I've told you before, but basically that's the dua. Whenever we read a book of anyone, part of the reading of the person's book is to have good manners with the person. So if they're alive, we pray that we'll benefit, we pray for their preservation, and that we and them will benefit from their knowledge in this life and the next. And if they've passed away, then we pray for their forgiveness and ask that they and us benefit from their knowledge in this life and the next. Left off on Abu Hanifa. So if you've just come, basically we're in this book of knowledge by Imam Ghazali, book of knowledge. Uh, as Asnawi mentioned, uh, the, the sobering thing about the revival of the religious sciences is that you spend, you, you start making your progress on book one and then by the time you finish book one, you realize that there's 40 books. So, you know, <laughs> we've got some time to go. <laughs> but this is the first book, and the first book is the Book of Knowledge. And uh, he's talking about the value of knowledge, the value of teaching, the value of learning, the value of the people of knowledge, the uh, kind of like warnings to the people of knowledge about having to practice what they learn and so on. Uh, and so then he kind of worked up in that to getting to the four imams as examples of people who brought together external knowledge and internal knowledge 
that they weren't just book smart, but their hearts were smart too. Not only were their minds smart, but their hearts were sound. And they were good, righteous people who acted upon that which they knew. So first he talked about Imam al-Shafi'i, which was quite beautiful. And uh, we mentioned at that time that, <coughs> you know, an uh, Ghazali was a Shafi'i. So even though a Shafi'i is not chronologically the first of the four Imams, he talks about him first out of love for his Imam. Now we're on Imam Abu Hanifa, which is probably the more common in the room for those who are connected to their lineages uh, in terms of their fiqh. So Imam Abu Hanifa, he says what? He was also a devout servant of God, an ascetic and a Gnostic who held him in awe and sought the countenance of God Most High with his knowledge. Uh, Imam Abu Hanifa was born in 80 after Hijra. It doesn't say in here, so I, I'll tell you. It was He was born in 80 after Hijra. So, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, dies about 10 after Hijra, right? He lives for about 10 years after the Hijra, uh, 10 or 11. And then uh, Imam Abu Hanifa is born in year 80. So he's very close. Chronologically, he's the oldest of the four Imams, or the earliest. And he died in 150. Died in 150. So he lived for about 70 years. And he, um, Imam al-Shafi'i was born in 150. So the same year that Abu Hanifa died, Shafi'i was born. So Abu Hanifa was born uh, in that period. He lived his life basically in Iraq, in uh, Kufa, modern-day Kufa. Um, yeah, that's sufficient for that. We'll get to what he says. As for being a devout servant of God, this is recognized from Ibn Mubarak's narration in which he said, Abu Hanifa was a man of noble character and devotion to prayer. He was devoted to prayer. Ibn Mubarak was actually one of his students. Abdullah ibn Mubarak, who was a very famous early figure as well. Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman reported that he would spend his entire night in prayer. Oh, that's an interesting narration. Hmm. Anyone know why that's an interesting narration? Why is that an interesting narration? Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman reported that Abu Hanifa would spend his whole night in prayer. Any takers? Hmm? Huh? He what? He had observed him? Yeah. Anyone know Abu Hanifa's son's name? Hmm? Hama'el, good guess. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> she said Hanifa. <laughs> it wasn't actually. I'm not even sure actually why he has that that laqab, yeah, or that nickname. Um, his son's name was Hamad. That's your hint. His, the hint is that his son's name was Hamad. But this is not his son's name. He named his son after his teacher. Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman is, is Abu Hanifa's teacher. He's the one that he stayed with him for 18 years until he died. When he started as a student, like as a serious student, he was 22. And he stayed with Hamad until he died, when Abu Hanifa was 40. And there was a point, they said, where uh, he was considering, like, maybe he won't... You know how the, what their schools were? This is why we do what we do here, by the way. It's not like you have to pay tuition and register for classes and all this kind of stuff, school. And then you have exams and things. It says when Abu Hanifa decided that maybe he's, you know, he doesn't have to spend all his time with Hamad anymore, what he did was he just picked up his sandals and he walked to the other circle. <laughs> like they're in the mosque, and there's one circle, and it's Hamad's circle, and then there's the other circle, it's someone else's circle, and that's how they learned. There was no like, even Al-Azhar was like that for centuries, right? This whole modern university system, it wasn't like that. You just walk in, study with whoever you want. And then, like, uh, Hamad knew that he wasn't ready, so he sent someone to ask him a question. <laughs> I think it was a woman, actually. She, he sent this woman to ask him a question, and then he, he heard the question, and he wasn't sure of the answer. So when he realized he didn't know the answer, then he just picked up his slippers, walked back to Hamad, <laughs> <laughs> sat down in a circle again, said, I'm not leaving him until he dies. Stayed with him for 18 years. So Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman is his teacher. Reported that he would spend his entire night in prayer. It's very interesting. It was related concerning this matter that he would at first spend half the night in devotion. Then one day as he was passing down a thoroughfare in Kufa, someone pointed him out as he was walking along and said to another, This is the one who passes the entire night in devotion. So you see what happened? He used to spend half of his night in prayer <laughs> and worship. Then he was walking one time and someone saw him and said, This is the guy who spends all of the night in worship. 
He said, from that moment, he never ceased to spend all his nights in devotion. And he said, I would feel ashamed before God if I were described as worshipping him in a way that did not apply to me. <laughs> so he used to do half. Someone said he did more. So he, felt, he says, I felt shy in front of Allah that people are saying something about me that I don't actually do. So I started praying the whole night. <laughs> as for his asceticism, uh, as for his asceticism, meaning he, he didn't have, his concerns were not concerns of this world. right? His, that's not his concern. By the way, Abu Hanifa was very rich, just to be, just to be clear. He was a very rich person. He inherited uh, a business that dealt with textiles and like selling fabrics and stuff. And he was very wealthy. He was a very honest business person. Um, and, you know, they say, for example, that like he used to fund many of the Hadith scholars of his time. That he just, he'd give them stipend. He told them, I don't want anything in return. Like, I don't, you don't have any responsibility to me. You don't have to tell me your conclusions, nothing, right? But just, here's, you go and do your work and everything is fine. So it says that, as for his asceticism, Rabi'a ibn Asim said, Yazid ibn Umar ibn Hubayra, the governor of Kufa, dispatched me to bring Abu Hanifa before him. He pressed him, Abu Hanifa, to take charge of the treasury, but he declined and was given 20 lashes. Behold how he fled from appointment to political position and patiently bore the chastisement given to him. This was a character that you see in all of the four imams actually. So what is the situation? Abu Hanifa is very complicated to be powerful. Okay, and, and, and like the, the scholars had oftentimes a very complicated position because the political powers are always going to try to co-opt you. And if you don't engage with them, they're probably going to hurt you. But you kind of have to figure out, like, how am I going to deal with this, right? Uh, Abu Hanifa, they say, actually, there's different narrations on how he died, but basically he died of being poisoned by the, by the rulers of his time. Uh, he died in his, in, under house arrest, essentially, after being poisoned. Uh, so you see this from him, that they wanted to give him this position. They wanted to put him in charge of the treasury. And he declined, so he was he was publicly flogged for it. He was lashed for it. Um, you see, the same thing happened with Manik. We talked about last time. You know, this thing that happened with Manik, where uh, that that Sheikh Fuad was here that night, and he shared some comments on that. That uh, you know, basically, the ruler who had come in was uh, like trying to manipulate an opinion in the law to get people to. He basically said that. If you don't give me bay'ah, if you don't give allegiance to the ruler, then your wives are divorced, right? And so, and then he told all the scholars, you have to hold the opinion that divorce issued under duress counts, right? That it's not doesn't count. And Malik's position was that it doesn't count. So he would narrate that he would continue teaching and he would narrate the narration and he would say it doesn't count. And so when they found out about that, they beat him, right? The same thing happened to him. Uh, Abu Hanifa, same thing happened to him. A Shafi'i, as we mentioned when we came to his life, that he was almost killed actually by the rulers in his time. And Imam Ahmed's story is famous, right? Imam Ahmed's uh, Nasr al Sunnah. He's the, he's the victor of the way of the, the Sunnah of the Prophet and the majority of the community that the rulers in his time tried to take, get him, force him. They were forcing all of the people of knowledge to take a particular position in theology, and he refused to take it. And they beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him until actually the ruler died before he did. <laughs> actually, he went through, I think, three, three rulers in his time. I don't know if he goes into the details here, but nonetheless, the point is all of them went through all of the four imams. It's interesting that all of the four imams, actually, he's not going to cover it because he doesn't cover Ahmed in here, right? Does he? Oh, he does. Okay. They all went through uh, these kind of difficulties. May Allah protect us and our families and our loved ones. And Help us to meet him and he's pleased with us. And Hakim ibn Hisham al-Thaqafi said, Why is that important, by the way? It's important because th this is the balance of power in Muslim society. You know, like in American society, you say that you have that, um, I shouldn't say you have that, we have that three-part, what do they call it? I forget what we call Checks it now. And Checks and balances, the, the judicial and the, the executive and the legislative, right? Um, the branches of government and how they balance one another assuming of course that the president doesn't just do whatever he feels like and whatever anyways um, but that's what it's supposed to be and um, that that 
was the the balance of power in Muslim civilizations was essentially between the rulers and the scholars. So it's not even really the judicial in a sense because the judicial is kind of under the scholars actually. You know, some of the scholars will take judicial positions, some of them won't. But in the end, the ruling that you give in the court has to be from your madhab, from your school of thought, and your school of thought is determined by the scholars of your school, which are outside of the system. So there's kind of like, and this is where the balance is. And if people get out of hand, then they the rulers get out of hand, then the scholars will tell basically tell the people like, all right, you don't have to obey them anymore, and it's done, and then you just replace them, and they get someone else. <laughs> so this was kind of like the push and pull was always with the people of knowledge. Um, and we told before one of the stories actually in the modern period, which was was one of my uh, one of the stories that you know it's 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 really a remarkable story because it's it's more modern and it it still has a miracle in it. And, uh, you know, we believe in miracles in Islam because we believe in God. And uh, God may customarily put things however he wants, but he can also break that custom whenever he wants. And um, one of the stories in the modern period is the story of Imam al-Dardir, who we used to study on Thursday nights. Yeah, Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir, rahimahullah, who was one of the great scholars of Azhar in his time, about, you know, 200 years ago-ish. And um, there was a ruler in his time that um, you know it, the thing is too like when you're a high high level scholar people follow you even from your students and from the other scholars so it gets kind of complicated so Imam al-Dardir was known that he doesn't eat food from anyone that's not righteous he won't touch it it's just <laughs> you know he'd rather go hungry and uh, so the ruler invited him to like this big dinner but he knows that if he doesn't go the ruler can't really touch him because he's too powerful too popular but he can take punish everyone else so he knows if he doesn't accept the invitation then his students won't accept the invitation and his students will get punished so he accepts the invitation so he goes to the invitation and so on right and he sits down and they put out the food and everything and um you know they say it's time to eat go ahead and eat and he doesn't raise his hands to eat so he's sitting at like this big table and the rulers intent he's like a new ruler he's trying to get everyone under his control so he, he says, go ahead and eat. And then people go and they start eating. And Muhammad Dardir doesn't move his hands. So the ruler looks at him and he says, why aren't you eating? And he says, you know my position. I don't eat the food of people unless they're righteous. He says, so what are you saying about me then? He's like, I'm not saying anything, you know. <laughs> and he said, is that the way to treat your host if you're invited and this is what you're teaching the people and so on and so forth? And if my food's not halal, if it's not permissible, then like, you know, what are you doing? He starts giving him a hard time. So they say that he picked up the Imam al-Dardir picked up the rice in his hand and he held it up in the in the air and he said, Oh Allah, if this food is not permissible, then show them. And when he held it up in the air, blood started to drip from the rice. Like, where did you get the you got this from oppressing the people? You didn't get it from permissible means, right? And then like you know, what are you gonna do after that? Can't kill him. It's, it's you know, you just have to submit to it. So he's Imam Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir. Dardir was a great scholar. So all of them, they had to deal with these things. Some of them took different positions. Some of them were closer, some of them were further, some of them were this, some of them were that. But one of the big principles that's really important in Islam is that our, the protection of the religion and the protection of the teachings of the religion is not in a particular individual. Other than the Prophet When it comes to the Prophet, the teachings of the religion are perfected and preserved in the example of the Prophet after that, the preservation of the religion and the teachings of the religion is not in an individual, it's in the jama'ah. It's in the collective of the scholars and the people of knowledge and righteousness and so on. So it might be that like one ruler had a position with political leadership and you're like, oh, that's shady, or I don't know about that, or that's questionable to me, or so on and so forth. It might be whatever it is. You might not know, or you might know. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter because it's one person in the end. Our, our religion is not based on one person. Our religion is based on a body of people. So, you know, and that's the that's how there's the corrective. The corrective is not in the, you know, if there's only one person, then the, the, a mistake is made and everything is ruined. But when it's a, a body of people, then things there's a push and pull in that that leads to some level of uh, correction, inshallah. Al-Hakim ibn Hisham al-Thaqafi said, oh, I was talking about legislative and judicial. There's a little bit of a comment on that if you're interested in reading about it. That's what I was going to say. In the book, uh, 
The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State by Noah Feldman. Noah Feldman. I don't know where he is now. When that book came out, I think he was at Harvard Law School as a professor, if I'm not mistaken. But that was uh, when we were still in Egypt, so I don't know what year that was. Maybe like 2009 or 10 or something when that book came out. It's a good book. Interesting. He talks about that concept. Al-Hakam ibn Hisham al-Thaqafi said, I spoke about Abu Hanifa in Syria and said that he was the most trustworthy of all men. It occurred that the Sultan, Marwan, pressed him to take the position to oversee the keys of the treasury or be whipped. He chose their punishment over the punishment of God. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty ballish statement. <laughs> it is related that Abu Hanifa was mentioned in the presence of Ibn Mubarak who said, Are you mentioning a man to whom this world in its totality was offered and he fled from it? Mentioned here, I, you know, again, we don't have the Arabic and if we go back and forth between the Arabic, it's just going to start taking too long. But mentioned here probably means like he was mentioned in a bad way. If if we could, if the Arabic was in front of us, you could kind of tell by the word choice and stuff like that. But it probably means that someone is saying like bad things about Abu Hanifa, and he's responding and he's saying, "You're going to say that about someone who everything was offered to him and he took nothing from it and he was punished and you know and so on." Muhammad ibn Shuja related on the authority of one of his companions that it was said to Abu Hanifa. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, he's the Khalifa, the commander of the faithful, ordered that you be given 10,000 dirhams. Then he said, Abu Hanifa was not content at hearing that. So on the day on which they anticipated that the money would be brought, he, Abu Hanifa, prayed the morning prayer and covered himself from head to foot with his robes and did not speak. The messenger Hassan, Hassan ibn Qahtaba brought the money and entered his presence, but still he did not speak. One of those present said, He only speaks to us one word at a time. They meant that this was his habit in speech. Then he, the messenger, said, Place the money in this leather purse and leave it in the corner of the room. Some time after these events, Abu Hanifa made bequests of his household possessions, saying to his son, When I die and you lay me to rest, take this purse and give it to Hassan ibn Qahtaba and tell him, This is the trust you left with Abu Hanifa. <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's saying that the man came, he didn't say anything. Okay, so if someone comes and gives you something, but you don't accept it, right? So Abu Hanifa was very, very, uh, extremely intelligent person. So this he knows this money's coming, and he doesn't want it, right? But if he rejects it, it's going to get a little bit problematic, right? Because it's coming from the ruler and so on and so forth. So what does he say? He say, he wakes up in the morning, he covers himself. He's not speaking all day. The money comes, they put it down, he doesn't say anything. Doesn't say anything. Then some time passes, and he's writing like his will. This is his bequeathment, his will. So he tells his son in his will, when I pass away and you bury me, take that money in the purse and give it to the guy who brought it. And tell him this is the trust you left with Abu Hanifa. Because he didn't accept it as a gift. So what does it mean then? It means he left his property with him, and after he dies he's going to take his property back. <laughs> <laughs> right? he, he like he's keeping it in his care. Like uh, I, f I don't know how you say that in English. How do you say that? I know there's a word for it. I feel like sometimes I'm a foreigner. There's got to be a word for that. Um, it's it's wadia in Arabic. Like it's uh, it's like when the Prophet and them took made the immigration from Mecca to Medina, and all these things were left in his care. You know, trust. Uh, uh, trust. trust yeah, it's like the trust. Yeah, custody. I don't know. Anyways. Trust. Trust, you know. It's, it's like when you tell someone, can you take care of this for me? And eventually, it's not yours. You're just, you're, you're left in the care of, that thing's left in your care and you return it later on. So he tells his son, when you, when you, when you pass away, when I pass away, take this back to him and tell him this is the trust you left with Abu Hanifa. His son said, I did that. And Hassan said, may God have mercy on your father. He was truly a man well founded in his religion. She told him, may Allah have mercy on him, he was a good man. He knew what he was doing. It was reported that he was summoned to assume the authority of chief judge, to which he replied, I am not suited for it. He was asked why. And he said, um, <coughs> he was asked why. And he said, if I were truthful, then verily I am not suited for it. You see, this doesn't work. Actually, the translation doesn't work. So what happened was, he was offered this position of being judge. By the way, his top student took that position. Just to show you again, like the way that 
it's, it's not like necessarily it's an issue that the person who takes it is bad. But he didn't want that for himself. His top student, Abu Yusuf, took that position, chief judge. Right? So, anyways, he, he told him, uh, Why don't you, we want you to take this position? He said, La asluh. I'm not fit for it. They told him, You lie. He said, If I lied, then I'm not fit for it. <laughs> if I lied, then I'm not fit for it. And if I was truthful, then I'm not fit for it. <laughs> this was his. I will tell you, Abu Hanif, like, imagine he comes up with these things on the spot. They tell him, you, you have to take this position. He said, I'm not fit for it. He said, you lied. He said, if I lied, then how do they translate? If I were truthful, then I'm not suited for it. And if I'm a liar, then a liar is not suitable for judgeship. Like it's, either way, he won, right? His knowledge of the affairs of the hereafter, the way of religion, and his intimate realization of God is attested to by the rigor of his fear of God, Most High, and his asceticism in this world. Ibn Juraj reported, It has reached me that your man of Kufa, this Nu'man Ibn Thabit, is a man with an inexorable... <coughs> an exorable fear of God. So, you know, that's his name, An Nu'man ibn Thabit. This is his actual name, An Nu'man ibn Thabit. Sharik al Nikhai related Abu Hanifa was a man of long silence, constant reflection, and little engagement in debate with people. Which is really remarkable because he was a master debater. He was known for that, especially earlier in his life, he was known as being a master debater. So, like, one of the famous debates that they say that he was in was that he was in a, a, a debate with an atheist and you know, they like set the time for it and there's a big gathering and everyone's coming because like this atheist is going to debate with Imam, Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Al-Adham the greatest Imam of his time so everyone's gathered <coughs> and Abu Hanifa doesn't show up it's like 15 minutes passes, half an hour passes everyone's like where did he go more time passes, they're like look he didn't want to debate this atheist he knew he was going to lose, so on and so forth, all these things more time passes, more time passes. Finally, Abu Hanifa walks in. And they're like, where, are, where were you, you know? And he was like, you know, the most amazing thing happened. I was planning to come here, and then I got to the river, and there was no bridge. So I couldn't cross the river. And there was no boat there, so I couldn't get across the water. He's like, and then I was sitting there, and I was thinking to myself, so what am I going to do now? And then a tree uprooted itself from the ground. And it uprooted itself from the ground and it chopped itself into pieces and it arranged itself in a little boat and it made an oar for the boat and then I got in the boat and I used the oar and I got across the river and then I came to the debate. And that's what happened. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, that's impossible. And he said, and you're going to tell me all of this made itself with no creator? And that was the end of the debate. <laughs> the debate was over. SubhanAllah. That's Abu Hanifa. Set it up. This, is the, this then is among the clearest indicators of inner knowledge and occupation with the essential elements of religion. Whoever has been given silence and detachment has been given knowledge in its totality. These are but brief accounts of the conditions of the three imams. Yeah, so <coughs> Three. Yeah, he only mentioned the, <laughs> the three, and then afterwards he mentions Ahmed and Sufyan. Those who follow them are fewer than the followers of these three, which is true. So even later on, the Hanbalis are always a minority amongst the three madhabs. Amongst the four madhabs, the Hanbalis are always a small group. Even in Azhar up to today, you can choose any of the madhabs, but if you choose the Hanbali school, it takes a little bit more effort because there's just not as many students, not as many teachers, so on. But you can still do it. However, they're renowned for conscientiousness. And asceticism are well known. The entirety of this book is filled with accounts of their deeds and teachings such that there is little need to elaborate on them now. So then he says, like, reflect on these people and realize that this is what true knowledge is. True knowledge is knowledge that's not only in the mind, but also in the heart. <coughs> in his time, yeah, it seems like it must have been his madhab must have been still going in his time. Mm -hmm. Sounds like they're. It must have still been going. I'm not familiar with that. Hmm. Okay. I don't know where we should ship to, uh, skip to. Any comments or anything on this? Uh, observations, questions before we continue? Yes. Thank you. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a hadith where the Prophet, peace be upon him, says that the best generation is my generation, the generation of the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet, and then the one after them, the generation of the Tabi'een, the followers, and then the one after them, Tabi'een, the followers of the followers, capital F's. And um, <coughs> where does where do these Abu, where does Abu Hanifa, for example, fit into that? Um, the stronger, more known opinion about Abu Hanifa is that he was a tabi'i. So he's he he had met companions of the Prophet That's what makes you from that generation. You're from the generation of the companions if you meet the Prophet. Or I mean, there's some debate on the technicalities of the definition, but essentially to that you meet the Prophet and you're from the generation of the followers if you meet any of the companions and the followers of the followers if you don't meet companions but you meet followers right so all four of the imams are probably in the in those generations um, let's just think about it real quick I don't think they are. Abu Hanifa was a tabi'i Malik is a tabi'i or is he a tabi'i tabi'i he dies a little he's born a little too late yeah because I think so Zanis would have been dead already yeah but I think Malik was tabi tabi so Shafi'i was probably tabi tabi he tabi did take from tabi tabi'in I don't know about Ahmed but in any case it's it's close if it's not there it's very close but then nothing happens like I guess there's a follow up question I always yeah. wonder about this as well like if they were fought at that time and that was the best of if they were what? If they were fought at that time for like speaking the truth, mm. like what should we expect from like 2019? <laughs> we should expect to be fought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. People who speak the truth, they should expect to bear consequences. You know, maybe you have some wisdom in it and so on, but it's likely that there's going to be consequences. Um, and I mean look around the world it's very it's very very clear you know like m many places that someone can live around the world let's just take the Arab world as an example um, <coughs> you know most parts of the Arab world if you if you criticize the government you're gonna be in prison so you know it becomes kind of tough and you know most of us who are born and raised in America can't really understand that we don't really understand what that means to to live like that, um, you know. Like uh, we lived in Egypt for six years, we experienced a taste of that, what it tastes like, and like what it feels like to to have a gathering in your home and know that it's illegal, or to be very careful about the things that you say in public places, because if you say the wrong thing. You might not be going to school the next day. I've seen like people I know get arrested in, in very violent ways in Egypt um, because they ran for political office when they weren't supposed to and stuff like that. You know, so you know, these, let alone they, <laughs> you know, <laughs> held some sort of position. I mean, look at Sheikh Salman, Allah Yufaraj Karba, Sheikh Salman Auda. You know, all he said basically was that they're what is it that there shouldn't you know these countries should try to get along and now he's I mean he said a lot of other things in his life too but that was the thing that really kind of recently has pushed over it's a great scholar you know the best generation doesn't mean that like those are going to be the best rulers or that those are going to be what it means is that like the collective of good people in that time is better than the collective of good people in the time afterwards. It doesn't necessarily even mean that there won't be good people in later times. You just won't have as many good people as you had in that time. Right? So. Hello. Anything else? I didn't think we were going to finish that that fast. I'm not sure what I want to go to next in this book because uh, I wasn't planning to cover everything in here. You want to skip this chapter? 
I don't know where I'm going to skip to. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just going to make slight comments on things as we pass through them, inshallah. He says, for example, in this section now on 78, an elucidation on the reason some knowledge is blameworthy. So he's saying, like, if knowledge is things that are true and knowing things as they are, which is the definition of knowledge generally, and, like, to know something as it actually is, then how is it that some things are blameworthy? So he says, know that knowledge in and of itself is not blameworthy. It only becomes blameworthy in relation to the rights of the servants, and this is for one of three reasons. The first is that it causes harm in some manner or another, either to the one who pursues it or to a third party. Okay? This is a possibility uh, that there will be some harm that comes as a result of the learning. Um, mm, probably people can see that. Sometimes knowledge is... It's really interesting, actually, this question of knowledge is power. Because it's an example, just recently I was thinking about it and reading a little bit more about it Because it's an example that I often use as a, um, the difference of philosophy, you know And how that affects a lot of things So in English you always, if someone says knowledge is blank, everyone will say knowledge is power, right? In Arabic if you say an enmu, what, what is it? An enmu nur, knowledge is light and that's a, that's a profound philosophical difference. But just to be fair, the Western tradition was also knowledge is light. Until, you know, basically the Enlightenment, ironically enough. <laughs> the Enlightenment was the, uh, the break in that. You know, that then, then knowledge becomes power. And, and uh, that's its own really, really interesting topic that's that's very very important to understand but there's a level of uh, detaching between the spiritual and the material that happens in that period there's a level of um, reductionism that happens in that period so all of that means that knowledge is no longer light knowledge is the only thing that's knowable are things that are tangible and when it when it turns into that then Knowledge is no longer light. Knowledge is power because it's things that you can manipulate. It's being able to control things and manipulate things and so on. Um, there's an interesting paper. You might find it online and read it. And uh, read it again and read it again and read it again until you understand it. By uh, Karim Laham. Karim Laham is a... It's like a, I don't know how to describe him. But... Um, like a philosopher, theologian. He has an article on the intelligibility of the Islamic tradition. It's called the intelligibility of the Islamic tradition. And he talks about some of these things. And he talks about how one of the consequences of that whole thing is that religion can only exist in the private sphere as worship and in the public sphere as politics. So now, the what religion is in public life can only be in the realm of politics. Uh, because of these philosophical things And he traces it a little bit And he refers to another paper where he traces it a lot So you can follow that whole thing um, And that's true for us too So then what happens when The entirety of your metaphysical tradition Becomes in public only politics You know You don't, you don't have culture, you don't have civilization You don't have society, you don't have adab You don't have any of these things You just have politics And the religion itself has become also now uh, reduced just like everything else in the, in the modern period anywho modernity very important to understand modernity it's very difficult to have a, a correct outlook on how we look at our faith tradition if we don't understand modernity and what it does to the mind and to thought and so on because all of these things that we're reading all of these foundations of our religion for the most part are before that they're not assuming that you're going to come to the religion with that mindset, right? They're assuming you're going to come to the religion with the, uh, with the other mindset that exists before all of these movements and stuff. Anywho, it's too big of a topic for right now. Maybe we'll do some things on it later. And uh, for now, we just continue with what we said. Second reason that knowledge can be blameworthy 
is it is directly detrimental to the one engaging in it. Right, so he says, for example, um, so maybe, for example, some people for them to study philosophy will actually be detrimental for them. Some people will be necessary for them. Generally speaking, if you're an educated person in the West and you've gone to college and stuff like that, and you actually care to think about things, you're probably going to have to study philosophy at some level. Sorry, you can't get out of it. But, or you could just not deal with ideas. But if you're going to deal with ideas, you have to study it. So you can't really take the position that studying it's not acceptable. You just have to be patient and get good teachers and stuff. Um, <coughs> third, no. third reason that knowledge can become blameworthy is when uh, is that it is immersion in a field in which the seeker is not firmly established so this uh, he brings up philosophy here but that can uh, so for example I'll give you a very practical example some people might disagree with me I still think it's true which is that I don't think it's very good for people to engage in a western academic study of religion until they've studied their religion this is my position you know uh, I'm not a prophet by any means. I'm not even really a very good person, but I think that uh, I think that is true. It's very difficult. You're you're going into a realm where the assumption is that God doesn't exist, exist, and that belief is wrong. That's the assumption of the Western academic study of religion. So if you don't have some sort of foundation, it's really hard to engage in that. And all of the doubts and all of the things from your tradition and everything else, they're going to be all in front of you all day long. So unless you figure something out, you're going to be in a tough place. Um, and so the found, you know, one has to start at the beginning and have good teachers. And you know, that's one of the most beautiful things. And Dr. Omar says, Hafidullah, he says that he went into graduate programs. He did his PhD in Islamic studies. You know, he wrote like a, a very respectable work in his PhD thesis. And afterwards he went to the Middle East and he sat down with his teacher and his teacher gave him a book that like elementary school people read in, in theology and he told him you have to study this book and memorize it and master it. And he was like, Alhamdulillah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> you know? So that's what I wanted. He said, I wanted to start from zero and learn properly. He's a PhD from University of Chicago, which is one of the best programs, considered to be one of the best programs in Islamic studies and stuff, right? And he was like, I wanted to go and learn from zero. So he learned from zero. Sat with the teacher, learned the books, learned the fiqh, studied the poem, memorized, memorized three lines of the poem every single day for three years until you finish the text. <laughs> Never talk about it. You never know unless you're like listening really carefully. Anyways, uh, that's the knowledge thing. Then he goes into this section about names of disciplines that have been altered, which is an interesting concept. So basically, what he's he's bringing up is that there's terms that were used in a particular way in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and slightly thereafter, that with the passing of time, they came to mean different things. And that's, that's not so wrong in and of itself, right? It's just important to understand that because you might be reading a quote from someone who's really, who's coming from a period that's before the terms were kind of standardized. But you read onto them the standardized meaning. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. He gives an example here. He gives a number of them. I won't go through all of them. But the first one that he gives is the word fiqh. So fiqh. Fiqh in the early period didn't mean this is allowed and this is not allowed. That, that wasn't fiqh. Fiqh in the early period was like general deep knowledge of God. And, and whatever capacity, that it wasn't specified to the study of law and ethics. It was more general. So when the Prophet says, uh, That the one that God wants good for them, he gives them fiqh in the religion. That doesn't mean that he gives the person the knowledge of this is allowed and that's not allowed and this is disliked and this is preferred. And that's not what that means. It means he gives them general deep understanding of the religion. So again, why that matters 
it's okay that certain terms might be used in a particular way and over time as fields of study develop and so on, they get used in a different way. It's just important to know that so that you, <laughs> so that you don't make mistakes. And, and uh, so he goes into that. Yes. Does that mean like, uh, when you say it doesn't have to be a learned person, it could be like an old lady in the mountains that she has that. Could be. Could be that that to that as well. Yeah. Uh, for example, those who, f- who those who fear God from his servants, those are the scholars. So that it's not like. Later on, we refer to the alim, the scholar, as like the person who's mastered these disciplines and so on and so on and so on. So that's why we spent so much time repeating over and over again that everyone, someone can master all of the disciplines in Islamic studies more than anyone has ever mastered them. If they don't fear God, they're not a scholar. That's our understanding of knowledge. And if they, that's a verse. Yeah. And those who those who fear God. Uh, hmm. They walk on the earth with humility and with softness and ease. You know, they're not. Uh, there's, a, I mean, these are the qualities, right? So y- later on, you might use it in a certain way, but that, you know, the the true meaning of the person of knowledge is someone who has a fear of God or a knowledge of God. Um, they also use, like, for example, in the very early period, a qari was actually meant a scholar. It didn't just mean someone who reads Quran. I meant someone who's learned, someone who's literate, right? They would be a qari, a reciter. Later on, it becomes a reciter of Quran. So, anyways, these are technicalities. If you're not reading a bunch of books in Arabic, it doesn't really probably. It probably matters because sometimes you'll still come across stuff like that where people will um, use words in ways that are incorrect and you might catch it. But, anyways, keep going. Skip that section. Mm hmm, hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost time to go to the other text. If you're losing patience with this one, we're almost there. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about um, fear of God, um, in my experience, it's the love of God that brings about that um, awareness of fearing. So, for me, it's like the love of God. Alhamdulillah, that's fine. That's good. That's a good thing. I mean, the fear thing is, you know, the idea is that the person has an awareness of God. Maybe awe is a good word. You know, it's not necessarily like this. um, It doesn't have to be like a really harsh thing. But they have an awe, they have an awareness of God. And, um, you know, so that's good. Love is good. Love is a good thing. Love is more powerful than fear. Then he goes into, um, you know, this like issue of knowing a lot of opinions on things. But we won't. I mean, there's just a couple of things to mention. The first is that if you're going to study a subject, it's important to study initially. It's like even they do it in, in secular subjects, right? Like you study it, you study it and whatever, and then you get to the next level, and they're like, we told you this thing in the previous class, but it's not exactly entirely true. There's actually a little bit more to it. And it's the same thing in Islamic studies. If someone wants to study fiqh, if they want to study theology, if they want whatever it is in Islamic studies, all of our curriculum has levels. There's beginning levels, there's intermediate levels, there's advanced levels. If one immediately goes to the advanced levels, they'll never master the basics. This is part of the problem of the Western system versus the traditional Islamic system too that came up in that quote about Dr. Omar. Is that when you immediately go to all of the differences of opinion and ideas and you're dabbling here and you're dabbling there and so on, you never get mastery of the material. And for us, this is not just merely an intellectual pursuit. Like what we learn about our religion is not simply an intellectual pursuit, it's also a spiritual effort and a desire to know our Lord. So both of them come into play. Um, so basically he talks about that. He talks about differences of opinion. <coughs> There's danger and disputation. You know, sometimes 
people they love to learn different opinions and stuff because they like to argue and they like to look like they're important when they argue there's this opinion that opinion and so on and so forth who cares it's not like I mean it's good to know if you're a spe- like if you're a specialist you should know this is one of our big problems actually is that now we have people who are perceived to be specialists for example in law and ethics we have people who are perceived to be specialists and they only know their school it's a disaster so like then you ask them and they, they weigh in on all kinds of issues it's fine if you just want to like give personal advice someone comes to you and you're going to give them an opinion even then it's you know it's probably better to know other schools too but sometimes people they only know their school and they make it seem like that's the only thing that exists that's a huge problem so but that's higher level if you go there early you don't have anything in the end and you can go there without being argumentative Um, (coughs) and just because you want to avoid argumentation and dispute and stuff like that doesn't mean that you can't discuss it you can still discuss issues and understand them and whatever Okay, I'm going to keep going. I want to go to page <coughs> 138. But maybe this is my favorite section. Right. So now, and this from 138, he's going to go into the manners, uh, the manners upon the student and the teacher. So the manners upon the student, the manners upon the teacher. And uh, he like gives an introduction and starts one of them, and then like what is what are the roles of the teacher? And he's going to get into the perils of pursuing knowledge, and he gets into, for example, an elucidation of the traits of the scholars of the hereafter and of the reprehensible scholars. So you can know who's who. These are the, this is the way you're supposed to act. This is the way that some people act. Um, I think I said this before, but maybe I'll just stop on this point for now. So we'll, we'll go to 138 uh, next week. Part of the reason why I wanted to read this text um, and to study this text together is that it clarifies things, right? This is the way things should be. This is the way things shouldn't be. It's good for me when I read this as someone who some people seem to think has some sort of knowledge. And it's good for you as someone who's in, in a class with someone that's perceived in such a way that you know, okay, these are the limits on these behaviors. This is the way a person should be. This is the way a person shouldn't be. And this is the, like, baini wa bainik and like an ilm in the end. This is the thing about student-teacher relationships. Student-teacher relationship isn't just like, I have everything and you have nothing and it's going to remain that way for 30 years. I have everything and you have nothing and it stays that way for 30 years is a complete disaster. The point of like studying and learning is to take it seriously and to over time, like maybe a student-teacher relationship is like this and then over time it becomes like this and this and this and this and this and this and eventually like, you know, actually I should say it's like this and this and this and this. And and the things that you learn are the thing like, between me and you is the thing that's there. Like, yeah, I, I can't end. I can't. You, you'd be like, well, you know, you read this in the thing, and we studied this together. But like, the way you're acting right now doesn't really embody that, <laughs> you know. So, get it together. That's why. We, so you can hold me accountable, inshallah, <laughs> with uh, and others and ourselves and everyone else, you know. So we can, inshallah, benefit. Okay, so let's take a few minutes break and then we'll come back and we'll do the other portion. Inshallah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.